0: That God is good. But I did a little digging. If you're a wordsmith like me, then you know that the word good really means God. That's what it means. You go back to the old English, the old German. Even Sanskrit has it, the connotation that, that good is God and it's what you cling to. When you, It's good, you cling to it, right? If you have a good friend, you cling to them. If you have a good job, you cling to that. If you find a goodbye, you cling to that, right? And so every time you use the word good, and Pastor Tom's getting that into your spirit, he's saying God is God. And if God is God, then what God says is true, right? You see, and God has a story. And he, he's invited all of us into his story. He wants us to participate in his story. And so, Lord, we look to you this morning. You're writing a story In our lives, we thank you for that. And we want you to know that you're the best thing, Jesus, that's ever happened to us. We love you with all of our hearts. Thank you for inviting us into your story. Thank you for making us key participants in your story. We ask you, God, to just let us uh, relish and bask in the light and the life of that story today. Help us, Holy Spirit, write the story of our lives with your power, with your grace, with your everlasting life. And, Lord, we want to be partners with you in advancing the kingdom. And, God, we do remember Pastor Tom and Shelby today. God, ignite them from the inside out and let them minister to Westgate Chapel and let them uh, speak the words of life, God saying that you are good, for we want your name to be known where it's not known. We ask this in the strong and the unfailing name of Jesus. Amen. Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Rome that were under the gun. These were people that knew the horrific and barbaric tactics that Caesar and Rome had been using to squash, persecute, silence, stop, cease the advance of the kingdom of God. For one reason is because Caesar made a decree throughout all the Roman Empire that he was God. And so in this pantheon of gods, Caesar wanted to be the tip, the top. He wanted to be the one, the one that everyone looked to. But the kingdom of God just continued to burgeon and burst and flow and increase wherever Christians went. With that in mind, I remember a study I read a number of years ago that the United States Air Force did, that within 72 hours, we forget 95% of what we hear. Now, that is bad news to a pastor and a teacher, because what you hear on Sunday morning by Wednesday night, it's, <laughs> it's gone. That baby has disappeared. But see, God tells us that we're not just observers in his story. We are participants in the storyline. He wants us to be people who are engaged in what he's writing through us. You see, often we just think in terms of what God wants to do to me. But see, God wants to do something through you. That's what he's doing. That's what Todd shared with us a moment ago, $21,000 to convey of hope. That's awesome for the garden assembly. That's, that's tremendous because God did something through you. And that's a story that will tell a story through every life that you touch, wherever that money goes, to feed the hungry, to touch the hopeless, to heal the sick. That's a story that God is writing through the garden. So his story, if I break that down, this is not new to you, it's really history. History is his story, God's story. And every single one of you have a story that God wants to be told. Now, if God's story is true, and the Bible, in fact, was not written uh, in chapters and verses, that's how we memorize the Bible, that's how we use it as a memory tool. It reminds me of something that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, "You don't lack any spiritual gift." Imagine that—a church that lacked no spiritual gift. There was no deficiency of charismata, of grace. What is grace? Well, anytime you read the word grace, you can put the Holy Spirit in there. Grace is not really mercy, although it contains mercy. But grace is the empowerment and energy and equipping of the Holy Spirit for you to do and for me to do what we could not do on our own. That is grace. Paul said to the Corinthians, you don't lack any of that. But then he goes on and begins to answer questions in that letter that these people had written him about all kinds of questions about morality and about order in church and about speaking in tongues and about the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul answered all those. But in chapter 11, he does something very interesting. He talks about the night that Jesus was crucified. You remember that? And he not just echoes. You know, sometimes we say if we repeat something that they parrot that or they echo that. What Paul did is he reproduced what Jesus did on the night he was crucified, and he said, just as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because every time you do this, the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist, whatever you call it, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, this is the one sermon, the one message that every believer gets to tell the story publicly. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But he uses the word remembrance. Jesus said in John 13, do this in remembrance of me. So Paul, he reproduced that. And that's exactly what that word means. Every time you come to the Lord's table, you are reproducing something because it's a memory tool. You are going back to the origin of that moment when Jesus irrevocably changed your life and transformed you and translated you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you are reproducing that moment. When you remember something, you're bringing back in the full flow of God's life of that moment when you became a kingdom kid, and that's a marvelous thing. That should cause that little guy or that little gal inside you to do cartwheels right there. Because God doesn't want you to forget. He doesn't want you to lose what has been planted in you. He doesn't want the fowl of the air and the spirit. He doesn't want the thorns, the cares of this life to choke out what he's given you. So let me ask you a question. I need your help here. How many of you can quote in some fashion or form the Lord's Prayer, whether it's old Elizabeth in English or hold your hands up high. Let me see them. That's more than last night. That's good. We're raising the quotient here. All right. How many of you can quote the Apostles' Creed? A little bit. Even if a little bit. Let me see your hands. I need a, I need some help here. We've got a few Lutherans in the crowd. and yeah, That's good. That, hey, that's awesome. I mean, that's good stuff. You don't throw the baby out of the bathwater there. How many of you can quote the ingredients of a Big Mac? Let me see your hands. Come on. Now that's less. So see, see, we're we're getting a, a tune here of the crowd, right? Okay. We had more Big Mac people last night. Now you helped me out last night. It's two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on sesame seed bun. <laughs> Now, the point is, we can reproduce and remember things. We can memorize. I've had people tell me, well, I can't memorize the Bible. Every time I open the Bible, I fall asleep. Or the phone rings or, you know, something like that happens. But we can remember. I mean, let's, let's do this. Let me tell you a story about a man named Jed. You know that? And then one day he was shooting at some food. And up through the ground came a bubble and, come on, help me, crude Oil, that is black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Move move away from there, go to California is a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved. (laughs) That show was on for four years in the late 60s, and you all know it. (laughs) But it's a story. And the Bible was told in storyline. It's God's story. It's marvelous. And, you know, teachers and preachers and churches usually have a model of how to communicate the story, and every church has a philosophy. And you have, if you don't know this, I mean, this is a very extraordinary, unique, and I'm not just saying because I I love Pastor Tom and Shelby. I love the leadership here in this church. Care about, Pray, Nancy, I pray for you often, if not every day. And, and, and we believe what God's doing, but this is a unique thing God is doing here. Don't take it for granted. You have a gifted man and woman of God and leadership team that is leading this church. They are people of character. Don't take that for granted. That is not found everywhere. That is not to be discovered in every pastor, in every church, and every leader. And there's a real need for that. There's a vacuum. There's a leadership vacuum. And, And there's a story being told here. And God is inviting some people to join in on the story and to be part of it. But every church has a unique method a vision, a mission of how to tell the story. Some teachers and preachers and churches will say, Well, we just want to instruct you. Is the Word of God for instruction? Absolutely. We need instruction. Paul told Timothy that. Then others, they'll say, No, you don't need just instruction, you need revelation. Is that true? Do we like revelation? I mean, wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. And then when we get revelation, get a rhema word of the knowledge, it becomes a living word in us in which it's not just to us, but then it becomes a grafted-in part of our story where we get revelation. But that's not the end of it. I mean, there's more to it. There's much more to it. Is it for instruction? Yes. Is it for revelation? Yes. It's also for incarnation. Incarnation. If you study that word carefully, in John chapter 1, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus. What does God want to do, according to Paul's words in Romans? He wants us to become more like Christ, transformed into the image of Christ, where the word becomes flesh. Well, last night I thought it was hilarious. I have five children, three sons and two daughters Four of them were here last night. The other is a teaching pastor and was at a prayer meeting last night. But they were all here. My youngest, Ethan, and his name in Eton in Hebrew means laughter, and he is the laughter of the family. And he texted me last night as I was speaking because I said to the crowd last night, God wants incarnational life to flow through us. He texted me on my blackberry and said, I am pretty sure incarnational is not a word. <laughs> I'm going to use it anyway. (laughs) Because God wants the Word to become flesh. How? By the storyline of Evan, God saying to you, hey, come on into my story, Evan. Bring your story into my story, and let's see what happens. It's going to be dynamite. It'll be critical mass. It'll be explosive. It'll be unlike anything you could come up with on your own. So I want to tell you a few stories. I want to tell you three. And I'll close with these three stories and just develop them a little bit. But it's how God talks to me. You see, the issue is not, is God talking? I've I've had people also tell me, well, I just never hear the Lord talk. Well, the problem is not, is God speaking? The problem is, are we listening? God is always talking. I remember back in... Uh, uh, the late 60s, when when Nietzsche's philosophy was so popular, God is dead. You know, it reminds me of a bumper sticker that popped up in Southern California uh, after that says, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. God is dead. So all the reporters, all the news uh, people, they want to know about this. So they went to Billy's, Billy Graham's house. They were out waiting outside the yard and they waited for him to come out. They said, Dr. Graham, we, we have heard recently it's become very popular God is dead. Is that true? Billy Graham said, that's absolutely not true. I just spoke to him 30 minutes ago. The question is, do you have your radar up? Are you listening? Are you dialed in to what God is saying to you? So God speaks to me in weird ways. I don't know about you, but I have a, a running partner. He's an, a, a Scottish-bred border collie, full-blood. He's uh, red-headed and green-eyed. His name is Eli. Now, you see that look in his eye? Actually, his full name is Eli Sackett. If you're a Sackett fan, well, there's a Sackett. Eli Sackett runs with me, and, and, you know, we've had all kinds of experiences in the mountains, and that's where we spend most of our time. I'll tell you three stories that, that really how God spoke to me and how he speaks to me on a regular basis, not just through the dog, but in life, in my story. And the reason I'm telling you this is because God wants your story told. And he's going to speak to you in unique ways through the word and through the storyline of your life that all need to be congruent, flowing together, emerging in a powerful force that displays and expresses his truth and grace unlike anybody else's. You are not An amoebic blob with no origin and no destiny. I don't care what Discovery Channel or National Geographic or the science elite tells you. You were designed by God with a very express purpose and destiny and plan. And it's all related to God's story in your life. One day, Eli and I were... We were running along a beautiful single-track trail. Now, I know that sounds like an oxymoron to some people. But we came up over this ridge, a rocky bench. There was hemlock and cedar. It was very stunning. It was breathtaking. It was one of those moments where I just wanted to bottle it. I came up over the ridge, and I I ran up, Eli, right by my left leg, and I looked up. And here is a man on the left side of the trail and a woman on the on this side of the trail, both with their pants down to their ankles. They were going to the bathroom. So if you put yourself in that position, what would you do? Well, that's what most people would do. They'd turn around. But I looked at Eli and I said, what are we going to do? And he started walking. So I just walked up and said, man, it's a great day, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it beautiful out here today? You know, they're pulling their pants up. and it was one of those moments where, I would have rather not. And, and, you know, as I think back to it, I, I, I didn't know whether, you know, how do you, how do you position yourself where you're going down the trail and you meet people like this other than say, this is a great day and it's beautiful. I've never been on this trail before. And, you know, and they're embarrassed. And I just act like nothing weird happened at that moment. And then blessed them and went on our way. First story. Second story is one day I was looking out over the sink and, and where we lived, you know, there's a lot of trees and underbrush and, and cover. And I look out the window and Eli has this funny look on him. He looks shiny, you know, like he'd just come from doggy spa or something. And so I, I mentioned it to Nancy and I went outside and I called him and I said, oh, man, you stink. What in the world have you been into? And he was all shiny You know, just glistening, oily looking. So I went out there, and he had found a large male raccoon that had been dead about a month. And it was the consistency, the carcass was the consistency, and I'm being graphic with these stories on purpose, of a Jimmy Dean sausage tube that had thawed out. And Eli, what he had done, I didn't see him do this, but I looked at him from his chin down his chest, he had taken his chin and rubbed his body on that carcass, and he just stunk to high heaven. He was rotten. Uh, I thought he would gotten two baths after that. Actually, Ethan was here. He said, no, it was four, and uh, it took a few, quite a few days for that to wear off. That's the second story. Third story is I was out running with him one day, and uh, a large dog ran toward us, and whenever that happens, Eli interprets that as this is a, dog monster that's going to kill me and eat me and he turns into this broiling you know he's not real big but he he turns into a broiling ball of red fur and teeth and that's what he did so I'm immediately you know it reminds me almost invariably for 20 years of doing this I'll see people who don't have their dog on a leash and they're not taking care of them and 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 when you run up to them they'll say oh don't worry they don't bite they don't bite you know, but they do bite. And this dog bit. I got in the middle of it. And I still have a big, you know, like, oh, right there on the backside. And it's, it's, it, it hurt, and it was deep. And that's the third story. So what did God say to me from those three stories? I'm talking about you telling your story in a way where God speaks to you, and you get it, and it's true, and you don't forget it. It's blueprinted on your spirit. This is what he said to me. Number one, don't get caught with your pants down. Number two, he said, don't hang out or resist the temptation to hang out with dead things. And number three, avoid dogfights. Avoid dog fights. Now, let me develop that, and I'll close. The first point of don't get caught with your pants down What that says to us, I think Paul really extrapolated on this point, is that we need to be a people as never before, people of integrity, where our lives are congruent. I, I find it fascinating, and I like to study this kind of stuff, that as someone said, an amateur built the ark, a professional built the Titanic. And what the point was is that when they built the Titanic, the engineering phenomena of that was they came up with a design for the first time that said because we are going to compartmentalize the hull, this ship is unsinkable. Now, anybody – I'm a farm boy. That's all I am. Just meat and potatoes kind of guy. And I'm thinking – well, if you get a hole in the hull of your ship, it's not a matter of if you go down, but when you go down. And when people when they when they're constantly doing things that is going to cause them to get caught in embarrassing situations, compromising moments. It's like rearranging the de- the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. I've <laughs> It's just a matter of time. That's what he said to me. Because just like you, I mean, I'm not anything different than you are, nor is any pastor or preacher or teacher, whether you see them on television or personally, publicly, up close, or at a distance. People are people. That's why Pastor Tom gets it into you. God is God. Trust him. God is God. Every time you use the word God or good, you're talking about God. And if God is true and his story is true and his story changed your life and he said, come on, bring your story into my story, then we need to trust him and not get caught with our pants down because that's embarrassing. That's something that I don't like. I remember there I went through a situation one time where I had merged two churches, Nancy and I had, with, with a group of people and these churches were diametrically different and we had rewritten their constitution and bylaws and it was, it was a tight wire walk with these two different groups of people, and I was constantly praying. and I, I didn't think of don't get caught with my pants down, but I was praying, Lord, don't let me shoot myself in the foot. Don't let me do that. Give me wisdom. Give me revelation. Give me the proper application of knowledge. Help me walk with integrity in this moment. And that's the storyline that's part of me now. And I can't escape that. Every time I, I see the test or the tension or the temptation of something that's gonna that will allow me to position myself in a place where I can get caught with my pants down, I remember Eli. I remember that moment. And it's something I won't ever forget. It's part of my story. Second point, resist the temptation or don't hang out with dead things. Now, what I want to do is I want to take about 100, invest 120 seconds, and I want to read to you from the message, Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Let's reproduce something for memory's sake, because I love how Eugene Peterson has rendered this in the message. It's marvelous. What Paul is doing is he's bringing the church in Rome, in this grand invitation of inviting them into God's story, their lives into God's story, he's he's unfolding this remarkable transparency of saying, hey guys, what you struggle with, I struggle with, we're all in the same boat. I mean, humanity's all on the Titanic until Jesus walks on the water of our life and says, come on, join me, get out of that sinking ship. I mean, you think about some of the stories that have impacted us, and and rabbis are rich and deep with historical accuracy on telling the the biblical narrative. You go to the the Torah, the Talmud, the Midrash, stories like Abraham going to offer his son Isaac on an altar. We don't forget that storyline. That's marvelous. We think about Moses standing on the banks of the Red Sea, and I've stood right there, and I've... I've looked at this body of water, and Moses and Aaron with nothing but a shepherd's staff in his hand, and they both step back, and they look at the crowd, and they say, Ladies first. We don't forget that. We don't forget the storyline, the narrative of God calling an unwilling prophet, a bigot prophet, Jonah, to a people he loathed and detested, the Ninevites And how after three days in his own personal prayer closet, in the shape of a fish, God deposits him on the banks of the sea and he preaches for three days to Nineveh and they from the greatest to the least, a very wicked city repents. We don't forget that. We don't forget a small boy with his lunch that Jesus says, "Ah, give that to me, I can handle this. And his followers going whoa. And on the heels of that, he walks on water and they go whoa. We don't forget that. And Paul doesn't want these people to forget that there's a true story that is being unfolded in their lives every moment. And that's true of every single one of us, every believer globally, God's doing something remarkable. Now let me read this to you. This is from the message Chapter 7, Romans, Paul being very transparent. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. That's getting to and through you is what he's talking about. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Verse 21. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Verse 25, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Romans 8. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the juggler when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver. Listen now. But we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. I would say that another way. Simply embrace God's story in and through me. Verse 5. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is as a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone who completely absorbed in self ignores God ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. Verse 9. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. Now read this with me. Let's fill the room with God's Word. It stands to reason, doesn't it? Let's start over. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that He did in Jesus, bringing you alive to Himself. When God lives and breathes in you, He goes on to say, And he does, as surely as he did in Jesus. You are delivered from that dead life with this spirit living in you. Your body will be as alive as Christ. Somebody say hallelujah. That is good news. That's good news. That's not just good news. That is great news. That changed my life right there. Now, Paul was telling a story to a group of people that understand intimately what he was talking about. The Old English really captures it more than what I just read in the message, because in chapter 7, verse 24, he uses the verbiage, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, the Romans had really perfected the art of of, uh, sadistic, um, cruel, barbaric, unusual Painous, suffering, and ultimately death. They were masters at pain. They knew what it meant to torture. In fact, they took some of the tactics that they learned from other cultures like the Persians and they would perfect it even more. The Appian Way... The Roman Empire extending all over the known world at that time. The Appian Way was lined with thousands upon thousands of crucified people on the right and the left. The courtyards of the elite of Rome. The polished rhetoric. The politicians, the scientists and mathematicians would gather as Caesar would take believers and light them as human candles on stakes To light their tea parties and wine and food gatherings. And so Paul chose a verbiage or phrase that these Christians, who lived under far more severe circumstances and storylines than we yet know, to get their attention, to give the graphic whole body context of what God had unequivocally done for them, inviting them into his story and saying, I want your story to be told through the redemptive storyline. The Persians had taken men, and the Romans perfected it, or the condemned. I don't know if they did this to women, but I know they did it to men, according to history. They would take a dead corpse, and they would take the condemned person, and as they held them in place, they would tie the dead corpse to their back, arm upon arm, neck upon neck, chest and waist upon chest and waist, and leg and foot upon leg and foot. And the condemned was sentenced to carry that dead corpse around until it literally corrupted and dissolved upon them, killing them in one of the most barbaric forms of capital punishment that you could ever describe or imagine. CSI couldn't touch this. And Paul uses this graphic contrast by saying, who can deliver me from the body of this death? And this is a rabbi, schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, the elite of the elite of the the religious caste of that day, understood the Torah, understood the rabbinical teachings, understood the depths and the gravity of God's working in and through Israel throughout time and eternity. And yet you see him saying to the Romans and to us, I'm dragging this dead thing around. And I try with all my might to usher some ounce of religious energy to cut this thing off of me. But the Torah can't do it. The law of Moses can't do it. Who can deliver me? And then he steps in the wind of God's Spirit in Romans 8 and said, For what the law could not do, God did by sending his own Son in sinful flesh. And he came in with the sword of the Spirit. And Marty, he cut that baby off, and I'm free indeed. I'm free indeed. Jesus did what no one else could do. He stepped into the story, (laughs) and he's my hero. He is my hero. How did I get all that out of Eli? Resist hanging out with dead things. Every day. And I'm not going to give you a list, but we have decisions to make, don't we? Third and final, avoid dogfights. Now, the verse I chose in Proverbs 16:28. let's just read it out loud together. Troublemakers start fights. Gossips break up friendships. That's practical, plain, simple. And that's the beauty. I, you know, I, I really appreciate the fellowship the pastor and Tom and I have, and I think that's the beauty of, of what you're getting here at the Garden is you don't get sensationalism. God's story, in fact, is not sensational, but it's supernatural. It's simple. It's it's applied personally and intimately to our lives. And we know that what really what that means. But when I got into that dogfight, here's my point. I'm going to take it a little di- different direction than what you may think I'm going to say. We obviously know that we don't want to do that. We don't want to become a victim of that. We don't want to be guilty of that. But that's not the point. I think there is a a deeper issue here that we don't want to miss. Because when I took off with Eli that day, I had a trail to run. I had a place to go. I had a finish I wanted to experience. I had some scenery that I wanted to enjoy. I I was looking forward to it. And when that dogfight happened, guess what? It distracted me. And that's what I'm talking about. This is a story I want to tell, is avoid the distractions. Keep the main thing the main thing. I know when Nancy and I went to Japan as missionaries, we took our children there. We moved into a very old traditional Buddhist neighborhood in Shokucho. There was virtually no English anywhere in those days. It was a very difficult assignment. The cost of living was prohibitive. I went to language school every day, learning to read, write, and speak Japanese. And on top of that, I was convinced God was punishing me. I mean, Japanese, and and Nancy, I love Japanese people. We've got dear friends to this day from our time there. We enjoy Japanese food. But I'm telling you, the Japanese language and the Japanese alphabets are tough. And when I went to language study every day near Yokohama, Eki Eki is a train station where tens of thousands of people commute and change trains and and went into that environment every day where 15 nations were in my class. And Jun Sensei, my instructor, would not speak English. So I walked in, cold turkey, three alphabets to learn, all based on Chinese kanji, Uh Speaking Japanese, it. I mean, I had more brain cells burn out and left on that floor every day than, than you can imagine. And every day I walked out of there. Now I, I may be speaking to somebody here that that's how you've been feeling about where you are, and your story. God, what's up with this storyline? I'm not getting it. And that's what I was saying. God, I'm not getting this. This is killing me. Learning Japanese. Every day, what's up with this? What's up with this? Until one day. You know, God, in writing his story, he doesn't always tell us what he's up to. Until he says, okay, it's time for you to step in and join the storyline in a real participatory way. Jun sensei looked across the room and he said, maika in Japanese, maika you're from America and it's almost what you call Christmas in America. Would you please stand up and tell the class what Christmas means to you? I mean, my argument, my complaint had been, you know, this is uh, a waste of my time. I need to be out there winning souls. I need to be, you know, doing something that I perceived and I thought was valuable. Not, you know, learning Chinese kanji and how to count small things and big things and round things and people, ships and cars. and. But that moment, I mean, I got it. When that teacher said stand up and tell the class what Christmas means to you, I got it. And when I stood up and I shared what Christmas meant to me, you see, I wasn't—I didn't get distracted anymore by the complaints I was offering. I didn't get over in the dogfight of grumbling about what wasn't happening. I suddenly was in tune with what God was doing. You see, when you get distracted over here and you get in any kind of a dogfight, it ends up biting you on the rear, and sometimes it leaves a scar. I've got—I've got a quite a dog bite to show for it. And as a result of that moment, of that invitation, I was able to bring Bibles to nine people in that class. I led a number of them to Christ, including June Sensei. I will, I still have the postcard. I'll never forget the day after we had finished that quarter and he had, he told me, I'm going to uh, I my position. I want to be a uh, missionary in another culture. And as we begin to talk about this, I was in a noodle shop during the rush hour. It was just God that he found me. He walked in. He saw me seated there. And I don't remember, Nancy, were you, were you with me that day? You were, weren't you? When he walked in, he sat down beside us. He told us what he was going to do. And it wasn't many months after that I received a postcard from him, which I still have, as I mentioned, and he just said Michaelson what you shared with me changed my life. I am now in Thailand. I'm learning to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and agricultural techniques so I can be a missionary from Japan. <laughs> that is the kind of story that God writes. And he doesn't want you to miss it, lose it or forget it. Lord Would you do what I can't do? Holy Spirit, would you take the true story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, our beginning and our end and the dash in between everything it represents? Because more than anything, we want our story to count. There's not a human heart beating in this room that doesn't want to make a difference. And the beauty of that, Lord, is that when our story becomes woven into the tapestry and the beauty and the remarkable and marvelous extravagance of your story, it doesn't compare. It's unlike anything this world has ever seen. In fact, it is. So, Holy Spirit, touch every heart with your tender touch. Heal every sickness. Drive out every disease. Bring every person that is lost in any way into the fullness of your grace and story that they will discover their true selves. And I give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. I would just love to pray for anyone here this morning that needs prayer for any.